0: Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are
1: free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel there's a lot to talk about we're going to continue our discussion on the uh, on section 1 of the constitution but first there are a couple of current events that uh, we probably should touch base on uh, shall we begin with uh, where we currently stand with the uh, the 2020 election and a lot of question marks that uh, that still remain
0: I wish I could give you some definite answers on that Brian I can only say that the 2020 election is still unsettled. We have congressional races going on, and looks like, as far as I know, all of these have been, at least a winner has been declared. I'm sure there'll be recounts. There is one in Iowa, in the 2nd or Southeastern District of Iowa, where Ms. Miller-Meeks has, as of right now, been declared the winner of her race by six votes, and several others that are... Close, but not that close. But it looks like Republicans have made substantial gains in the House, and, however, not quite enough to gain a majority in the House. And then in the Senate, right now it's pretty well settled that Republicans have 50 seats in the Senate. Democrats have 48, and that includes two that are not actually Democrats, but the caucuses the Democrats, so we'll call that 48, with two seats still undecided off in early January. Now, those two are Georgia. Georgia had one senator who'd been elected to a full term and is up for re-election, another who'd been appointed to fill a vacancy and therefore is up for re-election. In both of these, the incumbent received just a little less than a clear majority and in georgia you know each state has its own laws concerning elections in most states if you had a plurality that would be enough to get you elected in the general election so if there were some third party voters like independent party or constitution party on the right or green party on the left and so on they wouldn't interfere with the candidate getting a plurality necessarily but in both of these Georgia races, the Republican incumbent did not receive a clear majority. In one, Senator Perdue, he received just barely under fifty percent, and had quite a, a bit more than his Democratic opponent, but not a majority, and so there has to be a runoff. And in the other, Senator Kelly Leffler was quite a bit short of a majority. But anyway, so in both of these, there is going to be a runoff in early January. And I can only say that attention needs to be focused there because control of the Senate will be determined by this election. If the Republicans gain one or both of these seats, they'll have a clear majority in the Senate. And assuming that all of their members will vote together, that means that... Any of the radical Democrat agenda will not be able to get through the Senate, and for the next two years at least, it means that much of this agenda will be held up. On the other hand, if the Democrats win both of those Georgia seats, then it would be 50-50, and then the vice president, who under Article One of the Constitution serves as presiding officer of the Senate, the vice president then would cast the deciding vote for committee chairmanships for tie votes and other matters and if the vice president were to be Kamala Harris then of course that would mean that the democrats would control both houses of congress plus the presidency if they win the presidency and the result of all this then would be that they could possibly get their radical agenda through A lot of that will not get through if Republicans hold control of the Senate. So right now it is of vital importance that Republicans control the Senate. And I would urge listeners, if you are concerned about this, you might go online and make a contribution to the candidates of your choice in the Georgia election. I will say that the issue probably is not going to be so much persuading people to vote for one candidate or the other probably most have their minds pretty much made up. The issue rather will be who can get their people out to the polls the best. And Carl Rove, for example, made the statement that, well, he personally didn't care a whole lot for this advanced voting stuff. In this case, he said, get your vote in so you can be sure that it counts. It could be that on election day, you have what we in the Deep South refer to as black ice, that is where the Asphalt highways have a coating of ice on them, and it could be that you'll be unable to get to the polls on Sunday or on election day. So by all means, get your vote in now so we know you have that settled. And if you have contributions that you care to give to this, I would certainly suggest you look to those Georgia Senate races as a place to give those, those contributions. Now, another matter that's going on, of course, is the disputed presidential election, And a lot of people have to be reminded that this still is in dispute because the media is talking about President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris. Constitutionally, there is no President-elect or Vice President-elect until the Electoral College elects them. And there are still contests going on in several states in Arizona, in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, in Mississippi, I'm sorry, not Mississippi, in in Michigan and in Wisconsin, and possibly one could even be opened in Nevada as well. And again, we'll remind you that there are things that can be done, first of all, that one can go to court, state courts and so on, to supervise the counting and the like, one can challenge a certification One could go to the state legislature, and if you can convince the legislators that the election result in their state is in doubt, the legislature could then appoint a set of electors. They're clearly empowered to do this by Article 2, Section, Section 2 of the Constitution, and so if they choose to do that, they can, and also there could be issues that are controversial here that's might only get to the United States Supreme Court. In fact, a lot of this question about advanced voting could have been resolved by the U.S. Supreme Court if they had been willing to do so before the election. They chose not to do so, and that's a matter of judicial conservatism, which I generally approve of, but the idea that we don't act in an activist way, we wait for a controversy to mature before we... Go ahead and act on it. In this case, though, if they had done so, we might have prevented a lot of the mischief that has taken place. There was a ruling in Pennsylvania several days ago in which a trial judge enjoined the counting of the advance votes by simply saying that under the Pennsylvania Constitution, a voting system is set up and it cannot be changed except by a Act of the Legislature or a Constitutional Amendment, neither of which was done here, the the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, over a dissenting vote by the Chief Justice, I understand, has reversed that decision on what they call the Doctrine of Latches, L-A-C-H-E-S. The Doctrine of Latches simply means that this case is way too old to be decided now. It should have been decided long, long ago. I can only say I have never seen the doctrine of latches used for a law passed by a legislature only a year earlier in which the harm became apparent only in the last several weeks. But that could be a matter that could go higher to the U.S. Supreme Court. Anyway, so I can only say that if I were in the position that the Democrats and Biden and Harris are in today, I would probably be acting exactly as they're acting, pretending like this is decided, that the vice president, who they say is the president-elect, is going forward with plans for the transition, the selection of his his cabinet and the like, and that if President Trump and his allies are contesting this, they are simply being obstructionists and sore losers, and to disregard them, That's the way the media is treating this. And if I were trying to grease the way for a Biden presidency, that's exactly what I would do too, I guess. But it is wrong because there are still some very legitimate questions. And I would only ask our listeners here, keep your minds open. Don't jump to conclusions. And we don't know yet for sure how this is going to come out. Anyway, so again, we see the Constitution at work.
1: I think that is solid advice because there are a lot of people running on pure emotion right now. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about a uh, a case that recently came before the Supreme Court regarding religious freedom. And, uh, boy, this is, this is one that uh, believers should pay close attention to. This is Constitution Classroom. We'll be back in just a moment.
2: 990 6976. That's 1 eight hundred nine 990 6976.
3: You've heard me talking about my pillow for three years. Folks, it's the truth. I get the best sleep of my life with a my pillow. You can do it too. 60-day money-back guarantee, 10-year warranty made in the USA. You'll sleep well or you'll get your money back. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener special, use my promo code USA, get two MyPillow premium pillows for the price of one, or call 1-800-951-8175. Get the best sleep of your life and do it
4: now. Balance of nature is fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. When I first switched over, because I stopped taking the other supplements I was taking and switched over all the way to Balance of Nature, I really noticed a huge difference. It was amazing. Like better sleep, better attention, better energy. It was just really, really great. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA.
1: Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I know we're going to spend some time a little bit later on in this episode talking about um, Article 1 of the Constitution. Let's, let's take a moment, though, and talk about a current event. Uh, there was a, a ruling by the Supreme Court, I believe it was just last week, that had some, some pretty strong implications for religious freedom. What can you tell us about that?
0: You know, we've been talking about the confirmation of a new Supreme Court justice, Amy Honey Barrett, and already we can certainly say that her presence on the court has made a difference. The case involved Governor Cuomo and the state of New York and restrictions being placed upon a Catholic church and upon a Orthodox Jewish synagogue and others as well, of course. But if I recall correctly, the Order of Governor Cuomo simply says that there can be no more than 25% occupancy, that is, if the maximum occupancy allowed for a church is, 25, is, say, 100, no, no more than 25 people can be there, there can be no more than 25% or 50 persons, whichever is fewer. If you have a building, in other words, it's, it's 1,000 people, then 25% would be 250, but Still, the limit of 50 would apply, so anyway, the various religious bodies filed a suit and took it up to the Supreme Court, saying that these are unduly restrictive of the free exercise of religion. And as we've noted before, in past crises in this nation, we have wanted the churches open during epidemics and crises, because we believe God is real. We believe that he answers prayer. And we believe also that his wrath is real. And so we have one of the churches open. In fact, President Zachary Taylor in 1849 with a epidemic of I believe it was cholera at that time issued a proclamation in which he called upon people to go to their respective churches and to pray that God would alleviate this plague. And Seems we've changed today. Now, instead of thinking God and his acts are real, now we think that prayer is just a religious ritual that we have to accommodate because of the free exercise clause, but it doesn't really have any meaning or any power. Anyway, the Supreme Court took up this case out of New York, and in a five to four decision, the Supreme Court ruled against Governor Cuomo and in favor of the churches and the synagogues and other religious bodies here in New York. And essentially what the court said is that this is unduly restrictive of free exercise of religion as it is guaranteed in Amendment 1, as God gave it, and as Amendment 1 guarantees it. And it's interesting that they use some language that I think could be highly significant here, that... In the past, up until about 30 years ago, we used to say that a restriction on religion could be upheld only if the government could show a very high standard that it had a compelling state interest, an interest of the highest order, and so on, that could not be achieved by less restrictive means. And then in 1990, In the Smith versus Oregon case, the Supreme Court, in a sharply divided decision, ruled that that applies only in rare circumstances, like when you have an act that is directly aimed at religion, or when you're asserting a free exercise right along with another right, like free speech. Otherwise, all you need to show is that the restriction on the church that you're seeking to impose has a reasonable relationship to a legitimate state purpose. Now, legitimate state purpose is a lot easier test for the state to meet than a compelling interest. And to say that it just has to have a reasonable relationship to that purpose, that's a lot easier test to meet than to say that it cannot be achieved by less restrictive means. Well, many of us have been arguing for years that this was a mistaken decision and that it should be reviewed and overturned in future decisions. Well, in this case, the Supreme Court did not actually overturn it, but they used language that could have the effect of overturning it in the future. On several occasions, the court noted in its opinion that there could be less restrictive means by which Governor Cuomo could have achieved the protection of the public interest, for example, by having a seating arrangement that was just based on a flat percentage of the seats available under any circumstances. In other words, if you're building seats a hundred, then at let's say twenty five percent occupancy you could have twenty five. If you're building seats a thousand you could have two hundred and fifty. You wouldn't have to have that fifty person cap as a restriction. Anyway, and then the court also noted the difference between the way the city was treating the church versus the way it was treating other businesses and so on. You don't find similar restrictions on how many people can be in Walmart and the like. And anyway, so by a 5-4 margin, the Supreme Court struck down Cuomo's restrictions and used language in doing so that suggests that they may be ready to overrule Smith. We wouldn't be talking about less restrictive means if the Smith decision clearly applied. And anyway, the fact that they talked about less restrictive means suggests that they may be ready to overrule the Smith decision, and there's a case coming up, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. It involves a city's licensor of foster care facilities and requiring those foster care facilities to be willing to place children in same-sex families and the like. And when that case comes before, well, it's already argued before the court, we're still waiting for a decision. When that case is decided, we may see the reversal or the overruling of the Smith versus Oregon or unemployment services case that we've been looking for now for about 30 years. But the point simply being, the court now has taken a clear stand that there is a protection for the right of free exercise of religion here. Also, the court and Justice Alito's opinion made this point very clear in this case. There, it was, there's been a case that a lot of us have been very concerned about in this area. It's a 1905 case, at Jacobson versus Massachusetts, case that involved compulsory vaccination when there was an epidemic. And anyway, in this case, Justice Alito, in his opinion for the court, simply noted that this is a 1905 decision. It was decided before we started getting the various gradations by the court of strict scrutiny, compelling interest, less restrictive means, and he seemed to be suggesting that Jacobson needs to be reinterpreted in light of that newer case law, which is what I've been arguing for a long time, and it appears now that the court majority is saying that. But also, another concern we've had is executive orders here. Executive orders that just seem to be repeated. You know, you could see an executive order for a short period of time, but then after 30 days, 60 days, the order is just simply renewed for another 60 days and so on. And the question is, can they do that? Well, here is a eloquent statement by justice alito in that decision he said even if epidemics should cause a constitutional holiday that holiday cannot become a sabbatical meaning even if there could be a brief suspension of constitutional liberties that can't be extended over and over again as has been the case major victory for religious liberty
1: well there's some good news And we've been needing some good news for a change, so I'm happy to hear it. We will take a very quick break. When we come back, we will be talking about, uh, we'll delve more into the Constitution, particularly Section 1. I'm sorry, Article 1. And uh, we'll be back with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. This is Constitution Classroom. Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, we have been making our way through Article 1 of the Constitution. I believe we were, what, five, six sections in now?
0: We're about ready to start Section 6. And the really, really important sections are the ones that are coming up. But Article 6... Clause one simply says that the senators and representatives shall in all cases except treason, felony, and breach of the peace be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session to their respective houses and in going to and returning from the same. Protection from arrest. Does this mean that we want the congressman to, to feel free to be as lawless as they want to be? Does it mean that they are above the law? Not at all. What this simply means is that we don't want a practice such as existed in England where members of parliament could be arrested and thereby prohibited from participating in parliament and voting. If we're concerned about a hostile vote coming up, the king might be able to just send out his marshals to arrest enough members of parliament to where those favoring that measure no longer had a majority. Well, the Constitution of the United States has a provision that is designed to prevent that from happening, but it doesn't mean that a senator or a congressman cannot be arrested if he has committed the crime of treason or felony—that is, any felony offense like grand larceny or like murder or assault or major, that is, let's say, aggravated assault and the like, or breach of the peace, other more minor offenses. What it means is that they cannot be arrested in ways that don't really bear a threat to the police, maybe tax evasion, something like this. They couldn't be arrested for this in a way that would prevent them from appearing and discharging their duties and voting in court. It's a means, basically, of protecting the legislative branch from interference by the executive branch. And then, Article 6, Section for Article 1, Section 6, Clause 1 goes on to say that for any speech or debate in either house, they, that is, senators or representatives, shall not be questioned in any other place. If you took that really literally, you could read that to say that if a senator is out somewhere giving a speech and somebody asks him, now you said something in Congress, and you can't ask me about that, you can't question me. No, that's not what it means at all. What it means is that they cannot be sued for libel or slander for something that they have said in the course of their duties in Congress. Now there's a reason for this. First of all, it could be the interference of the executive branch with the legislature by subjecting them to lawsuits for the things that they say and so on. But another factor here is that it could possibly have a chilling effect. That is, it could interfere with a senator saying something that he might think was important to say, but he's afraid to say because he doesn't want to get arrested. Let's say, for example, that on the Senate floor there is a debate going on about whether or not to provide a subsidy for a major airline. And then the senator has heard that that airline is abusing its funds to provide excessive compensation for its CEOs and officers or shareholders and the like. But he is afraid that if he says that and can't really prove it, that he might be sued for libel or slander for having said that. Practical effect of that could be that if the Senator is afraid of being sued for what he says on the floor of Congress, he might not say it. And maybe it is something that the other senators and the public as a whole ought to know. On the other hand, maybe he shouldn't be allowed to say things that are just simply erroneous, or they're libelous or slanderous. But either way, you can see both sides on that. But the framers opted in favor of robust debate in Congress and saying that you can say whatever you want on the floor of Congress and you can't be sued for what you say. This not only applies on the floor of Congress, it also applies in committee hearings and it applies when you're in your office performing various congressional duties. It does not apply when you are out giving a speech on the campaign stump or something. You say something there, You can be sued for what you say there, even if it's about a bill that you've introduced in Congress. But again, the purpose of this is to ensure that Congress makes its decisions based upon full knowledge of the facts. And the best way to get full knowledge of the facts is full disclosure. And that's just generally a rule that we need to remember today because today we are hearing so much about politically incorrect speech, cancel culture, and things like that. And it seems like things that for a generation or so we took for granted, that free speech was close to being an absolute exceptions like obscenity and clear and present danger and a few things. But now we have to balance that against whether or not you might offend somebody or whether you might say something politically correct, things like that. And so it seems like the left is now taking the position that there are other things that trump freedom of speech. In fact, what I found really interesting in the last couple of years, we've had, for example, a bill in the Alabama legislature that passed, a bill that provided that universities could not stop conservative speakers. Well, it didn't say conservative speakers, but that's what it was aimed at, but couldn't stop speakers from speaking based upon their ideology. Amazingly, the American Civil Liberties Union came in and gave testimony in the committee hearing against that bill. You would have thought that if anybody would be for a bill that called for free speech on college campuses, it would be the, a- the ACLU, but no, they came out against it because they said speech that might be hate speech, speech that might offend gays or lesbians or transgenders and the like, that there are protecting them from being offended is a higher value than free speech. And therefore,
1: wow. they
0: spoke against that bill. The bill passed anyway, but they spoke in favor of it. And so we need to be reminded once again of the importance of free speech and the left, which in the past, liberals and libertarians seem to be the main advocates of free speech. Now it seems to be the other way around. And sometimes we need to remember is this. The best way to counter bad speech or false speech or erroneous speech or offensive speech is with good speech, true speech. In other words, use your right of freedom of speech to counter what is being said that is wrong rather than simply trying to silence and cancel those that you disagree with. And a generation ago, if I had said that, I would have thought I was just saying what was completely obvious. <laughs> Today, apparently that needs to be reemphasized because the left is engaged in wholesale retreat from their previous emphasis on free speech. Anyway, so we're going to move from here now to another part of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 7, which talks about bills originating in the House and and then on to Section 8, which talks about the power that Congress has as certain delegated powers, things that they can legislate on and things that they cannot. So after our break, we're going to get into these areas and we're going to look specifically at a case. Where these two issues really become juxtaposed, and that is in regard to the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare.
1: I'm glad that uh, that you gave the uh, explanation that you just did uh, regarding free speech. Um, it, it's and and I, I think you're right, Colonel. When when you look at who is actually defending freedom of speech, it becomes very clear that the ones who are working hardest to squelch other people's speech or other people's freedom to express ideas, however, you know, true or erroneous they may be, are the ones who ostensibly stand for diversity and, and inclusivity. But but what they're really pushing for is absolute uniformity of thought as opposed to, to real diversity. And so it's it's kind of funny to see that, that shoe ending up on the other foot. And I agree with you. And I think, you
0: know, we talk about diversity. I've heard it said that the way the left is interpreting diversity, it means, therefore, a wide chorus of all different kinds of voices, provided they're all saying the same thing.
1: <laughs> I agree. And I think John Milton would agree with your remedy for uh, for falsehood or for bad ideas, and that is you simply apply more truth with the understanding that truth will always win out in the end. We'll take a quick break. This is, is that... Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmoe from the Foundation for Moral Law.
2: The number one gift in this stressful year, relaxation from Homedics. Soothing stress for over 35 years, Homedics is the top home massage products brand with gifts for every aching muscle on your list with free shipping on orders over $50. Holiday supplies won't last, so avoid the rush while you can at H-O-M-E-D-I-C-S dot com. Get the perfectly relaxing, perfectly affordable gift now at Homedics.com and major retailers everywhere.
4: We all have health goals, but let's face it, you are living in some fantasy world if you think you are suddenly about to start eating better. In fact, have you thought of this? How many different servings of fruit have you eaten today? How many servings of vegetables? And sorry dad, French fries and ketchup don't count. The experts recommend eating over 10 servings of fruits and vegetables each day. That's where balance of nature comes in. With three fruit and three veggie capsules, Balance of Nature gives you all your daily recommended servings and contains 31 different fruits and vegetables. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of fruits and veggies. Change your life now by calling 800-2468-751. That's 800-2468-751. Or by going to balanceofnature.com and make sure to receive this special radio offer by using discount
3: code USA. Do you think some of the top investors in the world are buying gold? Recently, a handful of billionaires have been accumulating gold over other forms of investments. When the world's financial moguls like Sam Zell begin choosing metals, perhaps it's time you listen and follow suit with your own personal investments. Gold is formally recognized as a hedge against currency depreciation and inflation. Take David Einhorn as one example. Einhorn founded Greenlight Capital in 1996 and surged that fund from $900,000 to as high as $11 billion. Einhorn believes, that the central bank's recent stimulus efforts will have an effect on pushing up the value of gold. He keeps 10% of his firm's value stored in gold bullion. If you're interested in knowing more about gold, platinum, and palladium, call Noble Gold for a no-pressure consultation. They have the most experienced representatives and an exclusive pipeline to metal sources. Visit them at noblegoldinvestments.com. That's noblegoldinvestments.com. Investments.com.
1: Welcome back to Constitution Classroom. Once again, we are with Colonel John Eidmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And, Colonel, we are ready to move on to more of Section 7 and Section 8 of Article 1.
0: You may recall, Brian, that last week I asked you a question. If you were a Republican, let's say, and you could control only one House of Congress, the House or the Senate, which one would you choose? And I believe you said you'd choose the house. Isn't that right? That's correct. And there are some good reasons for that. There are also reasons for choosing the Senate. There are powers that each has that the other doesn't have. For example, there are a few powers that the Senate has that the house has nothing to do with. The Senate confirms federal judges, including Supreme court justices. The house has nothing to do with that. And in the, last two years, if we did not have control of the Senate, but control of the House, we wouldn't have been able to get Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett through the the Senate at that time. So that's a very important power. The Senate also has the power to confirm certain high officials in the executive branch, cabinet and subcabinet level. Below that, they're pretty well subject to the civil service system. And another power the Senate has that the House has nothing to do with is the power to confirm treaties. If we enter into a treaty with a foreign country, that treaty has to be confirmed by a two-thirds vote of the Senate. Now, a power that the House has is they have the power to, as we saw in the last year, to institute impeachment proceedings. They can impeach, but as we saw last year also, while the House can impeach, the that is, impeachment does not mean removal from office. Impeachment is kind of like, well, sort of like an indictment, and then the Senate will try the actual offense, or some say that the House's role is to decide guilt or innocence, and then the Senate decides what the penalty should be. but. If the House votes to impeach, then it goes to the Senate, and the Senate decides whether or not the president or any other federal official, including a justice, should be removed from office. And that has to be done by a two-thirds vote of the Senate. And, of course, well, the Senate, rather the House, by a very narrow margin, voted to impeach President Trump, When it went to the Senate, there was not a majority there to remove the president, and so he was not removed. There was not a two-thirds majority or even a majority to remove him, so he was not removed. I say that because in a lot of organizations, it's very different. In a lot of organizations, their constitution uses impeachment and removal in exactly the same way. But in our U.S. Constitution, impeachment and removal are not the same, and the House— begins impeachment proceedings, the Senate is the one who will actually decide whether to remove. In fact, prior to the Clinton impeachment, back in the 1990s, I would ask my students whether any president of the United States had ever been impeached. And usually they would say no. And then I would remind them that No, we did have a president who was impeached. That was President Andrew Johnson. A majority of the House voted to impeach him, but there was not two-thirds of the Senate to remove him, so he was not removed. He finished his term of office. The same was true of Clinton, and after this happened with Clinton, then people were much more aware, at least law students, I found, were much more aware that impeachment and removal are Not the same thing under the U.S. Constitution. But here's something else now. And this is another reason why you might decide that it's more important to control the House, and that's that the House initiates taxation. We talked about this some last week, or two weeks ago, I should say. But the Article 1, Section 7 says that all bills for revenue must originate in the House and the reason for this is simply that the house represents the people the taxpayers the senate as you recall up until the 17th amendment the i'm sorry the 15th amendment no the 17th the senate was chosen by the state legislatures the house was chosen by the people and since the legislature isn't paying taxes the People are paying taxes, therefore, the body of Congress that represents the people should initiate all bills for taxation. And so, that's a power that applies to the House, the power to originate taxation. And anyway, this becomes quite important because as we move into Article 1, Section 8, where we see the powers of Congress, well, Article One, Section 8 begins by saying the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imports, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. So Congress has the power to levy, ta- or to levy taxes. Now, when we saw the passage of the Affordable Care Act, or as we call it, Obamacare, back in the beginning of the Obama administration. You recall that the Senate passed this bill, and they put it in the Senate first because they thought that it would have a better chance of passage in the Senate. After it passed the Senate, then it went to the House, and you recall there was a lengthy proceeding. It was on a Sunday, as I recall. and We saw this live on television that this was going on, and they were a few votes short of having a majority to pass it, and then one congressman after another would announce that he was changing his mind and had decided to support the bill. And anyway, finally it passed by the very narrowest of margins, and having previously passed the Senate, so Obamacare then became law. And then it was challenged, and you recall that there is a 5-4 decision as to whether or not Obamacare was constitutional. And Justice Roberts, who at that time was generally thought to be a conservative justice, and I think still is, although he's been unreliable on a few things, but justice, Chief Justice Roberts said that Obamacare is constitutional because we read here in Article 1, Section 8, Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes. Obamacare is a tax because it has this individual mandate where you have to pay this assessment if you decide not to to get insurance. And so that is a tax, and the Congress has the power to tax. Therefore, it is constitutional. Well, you may recall that the Congress in the first two years of the Trump administration passed the Tax Reduction Act. And in that act, one of the things they did was to remove that individual mandate from the Affordable Care Act. And no longer do you have to pay that penalty or assessment if you decide not to get insurance. So that is now out of the bill. Well, the question then is, If that is no longer part of the Affordable Care Act, and that was the provision that Justice Roberts relied upon to say that the act was constitutional, now that it's no longer there, now that it's no longer a tax, can we still say that it is constitutional? And on the other hand, if they are going to say that it still is a tax, then we've got another issue that they have to face. And that is, if it is a tax, Well, then what we read here in Article I, Section 7, is that taxes have to originate in the House. And all bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives. Since, for all practical purposes, Obamacare did not originate in the House, but originated in the Senate, then it was improperly adopted and was what we call void ab initio, that is, void from the beginning. And that being the case, then, it's unconstitutional for that reason. And so, in this case that the, has been argued before the Supreme Court, we're still waiting for a decision, the case of, of oh, California versus Texas, we've said in our brief, one way or the other, either it isn't a tax, in which case it is not authorized by Article 1, Section 8, or else it is a tax, in which case it violates the original clause of Article 1, Section 7. Either way, Obamacare is unconstitutional, and we'll see what the court does.
1: Okay, that's a great note to end today's episode of Constitution Classroom on. Colonel, I look forward to us getting together and picking up this discussion same time next week.